happy Mother's Day. Mothers of Highlands Community Church, thank you so much for your beautiful, incredible, eternally significant ministry. Thank you to my own bride, the mother of my children, for demonstrating the gospel to our kids, being a woman of holiness and integrity, both at the church and at home. Thank you to my own mom, likewise, for demonstrating the gospel to me for my whole childhood and beyond. Today, I love the church in part because you personified the church at home. Happy Mother's Day. If you haven't yet gotten a Mother's Day gift, I've got an idea, and it'll get to you faster than the best caffeinated Amazon Prime driver ever possibly could. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ from Romans chapter 10. Both you giving your life to Christ, my skeptical friend, and telling mom about it is the most epic Mother's Day gift you could possibly give. Or if your mother is far from Christ, I want you to share this with her, see her come to Christ. In either of these cases, both you and your mother would be worshiping together in the presence of God forever. Happy Mother's Day. We've arrived at Romans chapter 10. And Romans chapter 10 is going to give us the answer to one of the more pressing questions on not only our present culture's heart, but on the hearts of generations past as well. This question has in fact led some people to even forsake the gospel and turn away from God. What happens to the innocent person living in the heart of, for example, Sudan, who doesn't have a Bible translation in her language yet, hasn't ever heard the gospel before, hasn't been reached by our missionaries, I mean, I grew up blessed with a mother who shared the gospel with me, with a father who led our family beautifully in an awesome church that taught me the word of God. But what about people who weren't born where I was born? What about people who haven't been reached by the gospel? Jesse, do people who live their entire lives out of the reach of missionaries, never having heard the name of Jesus, or being given the chance to call upon him as Lord, when she dies, does she go to hell? Now, the answer to that question could do one of two things. One, it could lead to an overwhelming sense of emotionalism and virtue signaling and even a sense of superiority over God that enrages you and causes you to storm out and shut me down and never listen again. Or, or if you grasp what Romans 10 says, it will define what you do with your life. What could possibly be more important than making disciples of Jesus Christ? Jesse, what about the person who lives and dies without the gospel? When they die, do they go to hell? The answer is yes. Now what? Now you hear Romans 10, and you become God's answer to that problem. Romans chapter 10 is often used as the home base or the proof text for Arminianism. Now, if you're not a theology nerd, it's totally okay. Just give me a few seconds because this is important to address. It's all right if you don't understand this stuff. This won't be on the quiz. Arminianism is named for Jacobus or Jacob Arminius, whose followers at the Synod of Dort summarized his beliefs in the five articles of remonstrance. Now, the fifth article is really unclear as to whether or not somebody can be saved and stay saved. It's, it's very unclear on the immutability of salvation. And for that reason, 
the formal version of Arminianism falls outside of the historic teachings of Highlands Community Church. Save for that detail, Arminianism likewise has been observed and held to by generations of members of Highlands Community Church who for decades have worshiped right alongside their Calvinist brothers and sisters and Amiraldian brothers and sisters. Some of you guys are like, I don't know what that is, but you might be one. <laughs> Molinist brothers and sisters, which you talked about in, in Romans chapter eight. Here's where Arminianism fits on the spectrum of soteriologies we're introducing through this series. Now I've updated this chart just a little bit if you'd like to take a screenshot for a closer look. Arminianism fits more within what could be argued as open theism. That's also a false teaching, which we rebuked in our sermon on Romans chapter 8. Not all Arminians hold to open theism, though. Not all Arminianism, Arminius, in fact, I would say most Arminius don't believe that you could lose your salvation. However, in the historic tradition of Arminianism proper, salvation is, is squishy, frankly. Uh, this also leads to a form of monergism that is upside down, okay? Within Calvinism, it is the electing power of God that reaches down and converts a soul to be saved. Uh, within Arminianism, it is argued as the believer choosing to be saved, and then by default, you could then choose not to be saved. So Calvinism is one-directional conversion, the energy, monergism, being exercised from one direction, from God to man, and then Arminianism, especially in its most extreme form, is another form of monergism. But instead of God reaching down, it's man reaching up. Romans chapter 10, along with 2 Peter 3, 9, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, and John 3, 16, is often used as a home base for Arminianism, but it's often divorced from what just preceded it. Last week in Romans chapter 9, we saw the full sovereignty of God on display. God is well within his prerogative. Who is, the, who is there that could correct God to tell him it's not his sovereign right to choose one nation over another? And because of his election of Israel, now all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God created this great nation through Abraham. That was the original covenant. And now all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. At the end of last week's sermon, we saw in Revelation 7, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And then that leads directly to this beautiful display of people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. So I see a beautiful harmony in the election of God, sovereignly electing Israel as his chosen nation, sovereignly electing Paul in Romans chapter nine, even being told of God, you are my chosen instrument. In John, Jesus said the famous words, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. He was speaking to his disciples. These are the ones that God gave him in John 17. And so you see the beautiful harmony of election with God choosing to save Israel, choosing to save his disciples, choosing to save our earthly author, of this text. And then you see the beautiful news in, in Romans chapter 10, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This text also contains the one verse that encapsulates an if-then statement about salvation. It's the only verse like it in the entire Bible. If you walk away with just one answer to the question, how are Christians made? Let it be Romans 10, 9. So with all of this in mind, all right, if you're, if you're not into the, the, the funny words, like with a dead dude's name and an, a suffix of an ism attached to the end of it, that's totally okay. All right, here's what we hold in highest esteem. This is what brings people of all isms together. This is the inspired word of God. And this is what I aspire to be faithful to. Here's Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, meaning Israel, is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul's heart breaks for his brethren, his ethnic brethren, the Israelites, who have sought their own righteousness, and they've done so with great zeal. Okay, if you're not familiar with what zeal is, you know, stop by Sorrento's Coffee next to Chuck's Donuts and, and get like five espressos, and drink them on an empty stomach, and about 21 minutes, you'll know exactly what zeal is. That's the kind of passion that the Israelites had for their legalistic rigor and their rule following. I've got to earn my own righteousness. I've got to make myself better. I've got to chastise the flesh. I've got to deny myself things. I've got to add rules on to the Torah so that I can make myself more righteous before God. And this is divorce from the knowledge of God. This could apply to you, likewise. Church kid on a treadmill, you haven't gone anywhere, you just feel like you're trying to earn favor with God. Don't you know? Don't you know, like we saw last week, it doesn't depend on human will or effort, but only on the mercy of God. My Mormon friend, don't you know, it doesn't depend on human will or effort, but only on the grace and the mercy of God. We saw in Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We saw in Romans 6, 23, the wages for that sin is death, meaning eternal death, spiritual death, death, hell, separation from God. But the gift of God, Romans 6, 23 continues, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. This is another common question that's asked of the culture today. Christians, why can you believe such offensive teachings like Romans 1 that describes homosexuality as a sin, but you don't adhere to all the dietary laws of the Old Testament? You're picking and choosing what to follow. It must be your bigots. No, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, Christ did not abolish the law. See Matthew chapter 5. Rather, he fulfilled the law. He is the end of the law. He is the completion of the law. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who does what? Just simply believes. Believes and believes alone. James devotes a lot of his second chapter to clarifying that faith and deed are different. So belief itself is not an act. It's not a work. Rather, faith is something that's even given by God. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. So your futile quest for self-justification comes to an end with Christ upon the cross. He said it himself to die. It is finished, paid in full. Continue in the text with me. Since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. He just quoted Moses. This is how righteousness worked in the Old Testament. If you do these things, you'll live by them. Adherence to the Old Testament law was one big foreshadowing of, one big indicator of your belief in the Messiah to come. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Okay, now this part can be confusing. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30, and we'll go back and look at that. But go with me on this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. He just quoted Deuteronomy 30. So just like we did last week with Romans chapter 9, 
let's go back and just see what he's quoting and make sure that we understand the original intent of the Old Testament passage that he's drawing from. Moses speaks to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 11. This command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not in heaven that you have to ask, who will go up to heaven to get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? And it is not across the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? But the message is very near you and your mouth and your heart so that you may follow it. See today, I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity, for I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances so that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you're entering to possess. It's not too difficult for you. Moses comforts ancient Israel because the thought of keeping the law of God seemed daunting or overwhelming, but Moses points out this is not too difficult for you. Don't say who will ascend into heaven to earn the salvation for us. No, it's not too difficult for you. Now, this is partly what makes us culpable for our sin. The fact that the law of God is actually quite keepable Every one of us then is to blame for our sin. We've been born with a sin nature, but we've also willingly suppressed the truth of God for the sake of our wickedness. Like we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what, this is also partly what made Jesus so angry when he entered into the temple courts and saw the corruption there. You want to talk about zeal? Jesus and a fulfillment of what Psalm prophesied about the Messiah saying, zeal for your house will consume me. This is part of the reason that Jesus just wrecked the corrupt money changers' tables. It's because he saw, he, he saw his poor oppressed Israel just like sheep without a shepherd and they were saddled with burdens they were never meant to bear. You saw some of the same crowd come up in Acts 15 who tried to add on unthinkable rules and regulations onto salvation itself. This is partly what made Jesus so angry. This is partly what likewise fueled the fire of some of the prophets, like Isaiah in chapter 28, who's quoted later on in this text. It's not too difficult for you, Moses assured ancient Israel. Paul draws from that to comfort us likewise. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Okay, you don't have to go on some cosmic quest to earn righteousness. That would bring Christ down because it would minimize what Christ did. In fact, it would make you look a little bit like Christ. In fact, that would be a kind of an insult to the righteousness of Christ because both you and I, brother, we're sinners. So don't say who's going to go up into heaven. That would bring Christ down. That would downplay the perfection, the immaculate holiness, the unassailable sinlessness of Jesus. And also don't say who will go down into the abyss. Like, okay, I got to go fight hell itself to earn salvation and come back up from the dead. No, don't say who will go down into the abyss. That, that's like bringing Christ back up from the dead. I mean, you can't do that. You can't do that yourself. Don't say who will ascend into heaven. That downplays the righteousness of Jesus. Don't act like you got to go on some quest down into the abyss. Jesus came down to earth, which was created through him and, and that has its being sustained through him. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 4, the sinless, miracle-working son of God in fulfillment of prophecy, the very word in flesh. And then he paid the price. He went to the cross and he resurrected. And so he has brought that righteousness near to us. We need not try to, through works and deeds and rules and regulations, ascend to heaven or fight the abyss. Rather, he has brought it so near to us that it is right here in our hearts and in our mouths. Because it's with the heart that somebody believes. With the mouth, somebody confesses. Look at how the text 
continues. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Again, quoting Deuteronomy 30. This is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is that righteousness that Paul offers instead of the righteousness that was through adherence to the law. The righteousness that came from Moses was he who does these things will live by them. Now the righteousness that comes through faith is this, by the spirit of God, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It is near you. It's right there. God is not distant and cold and disconnected from you. He's right there, my skeptical friend. He is the drawing on your heart to be saved. That is nothing short of the Holy Spirit of God. The very breath that brought Adam to life is breathing life into you right now. Your heart, your very mouth. Let's answer some questions about this incredible summation of soteriology, how Christians are made. Romans 10, 9. The very verse that I've ended all my sermons with for almost two years now, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess, you're not making Jesus Lord. You and I don't have the performativity or agency to make Jesus anything. Jesus simply is, you understand? He is the word and he was in the beginning with God. We don't make him anything. Be humble, okay? We rather just confess what has always been true since before the foundations of the earth. Jesus is Lord. What about the with your mouth part, Jesse? Why is it necessary with your mouth? Is it, is, are these are like magic words that you have to say? No. This is, not a, this is not like a Christian version of divination, wherein you so a, a seance or incantation or spell that's cast, like evoke salvation upon yourself and then God in the heavens is like, oh, they said the magic words, I gotta save them. Like, it, no, no. You're just confessing the truth that Jesus is Lord. And the with your mouth part, now here comes some deep theology, are you ready? It's just so that others would know. All right, for the, in the case of speaking peoples, so that others would hear. I mean, think about it. This is, this is a Bible translation in English, but the original, the original words were Greek. If it were some sort of spell or incantation, you have to say it in the right language, right? And what about, what about the beloved members of Highlands Community Church and our deaf community, arguably one of the least reached people groups in the U.S. is people who, people who are in the deaf community. What about them? Like, do they have, likewise have to confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord? If you're a member of the deaf community, I want you to know that this beautiful verse can be enacted by you as well. All right, would you say it with me if the Spirit of God is upon your heart? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Confess it with your hands. Confess it with your mouth. Confess it with your keyboard. Just let it be said. And if you're a closet Christian who's been ashamed of the gospel, not anymore. Confess it with your mouth. Confess it out loud. Confess it. 
because you are harboring the only source of salvation that your currently hellbound co-workers and family members and neighbors could possibly ever know. So confess it with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Now to say that Jesus is Lord and continue in sin is to lie. Because Jesus is Lord in your life, you're going to repent from sin. You can't just say Jesus is Lord and then have zero intentions of ever repenting from any of your sin. Not have any presence of the Holy Spirit. None of that down payment on your soul guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. None of the fruits of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. So don't think that you can just say magic words and lie about it. You committed another sin on top of the other sins that already condemn you. To say Jesus is Lord and never surrender to his lordship is to lie and to commit another sin in addition. Because Jesus is Lord, then he's the boss and you're not. You're surrendering your will for his because Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, we repent from sin. Otherwise, it's a lie. And you believe in your heart, at the very core of your being. This is beautiful, beautiful, sincerely held faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. And that certainty in your heart and the resurrection of Jesus, upon which all of Christianity hinges. Without the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 says that all of us are to be pitied beyond all men. All, the, all of Christianity hinges upon Jesus being raised from the dead. You believe in the resurrection in your heart, you will be saved. Now, saved from what, Jesse? Saved from the consequences of our sin. What is that? Hell itself, separation from God. So confess with your mouth, Confess with your hands, Jesus is Lord. Confess with your fingers on the keyboard right now if God compels you to. Confess it out loud. Let it be known. We live in one of the most diverse cities in the United States of America. You wanna talk about seeing people from every nation, all of us calling on the name, the name of the Lord to be saved? You are better positioned than most of the Christians in the entire U.S., members of Highlands Community Church, to see a beautiful, beautiful, multicultural, multi-ethnic revival come about by the move of the Holy Spirit of God in our community. Did you know that right now this sermon is being translated into Romanian? God's already doing it. Would you join him in this mission? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is totally okay with us. If you don't understand any of the isms like Calvinism and Arminianism, if you understand Romans 10, 9, you know how Christians are made. Continue in the text. He's going to elaborate further on what God intends by this. Verse 10, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 28 here. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. So everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. This was the basic essence of a phrase from Isaiah 28. This, is, this everyone applies to all nations, not just Jews, but also Greeks. The following sentence, a quotation of Joel 2.32, likewise applies to people of all nations, not just Jews, but all Gentile nations as well. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Joel originally was giving this prophecy about the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord is epic in its scope, obviously. It's, it talks about this, this day of judgment, whereupon those who are in Christ are saved, the, those who are in the Lord are saved, and then those who do not have the Son don't have eternal life because God's wrath remains on them, John 3, 36. Here's what Joel was originally quoting, what was originally saying in his prophecy in Joel chapter 2. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Listen, listen. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivors the Lord calls. Those final words are so beautiful and so important. Among the survivors the Lord calls. Do not divorce, my Arminian friend, do not divorce the calling of God from salvation. Do not dismiss the sovereignty of God in salvation. And do not downplay the Holy Spirit's work in salvation. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So this quoting of Isaiah, this quoting of Joel leads to this broadening scope. It's absolutely incredible to behold. Now, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why Peter chose to likewise preach from Joel chapter two and Acts chapter two at the day at Pentecost, whereupon thousands of people were saved and the church launched and pivoted into the New Testament era. It's absolutely incredible. Paul brings the same beautiful truth now. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what about the, what about the innocent one that we were describing before in the heart of Sudan as an example? What about her? Well, we've seen Romans 3.23. We've seen the truth of God regarding our sin and its consequences. If we're brutally honest, we know scripturally there is no innocent one. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If she were by default going towards heaven, then she must be born with the righteousness of Jesus and absolutely sinless. But we all know that's not true. Moreover, why would Jesus give us the Great Commission if she were already headed towards heaven from birth? Like Dr. David Platt teaches, the worst thing we could possibly do for her is go share with her the gospel because then she might reject it and she was, going, she was going towards heaven and now because of our foolish intervention, she's heading towards hell. No, we were told to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that God's commanded us, knowing that Jesus is with us always, even at the very end of the age, because evangelism is necessary. Now, what hope? does she have? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He then goes on to ask and answer the very next question, how then can they call on him they've not believed in? See that pressing question? What about the people who don't believe in God? How can people who haven't heard the gospel, don't know the name of Jesus, when they die and they go to hell, like how, how could they call upon the God they've not believed in? Paul, in true form, as he has the whole incredible book of Romans, asks our question for us and then answers it perfectly. How then can they call on him they've not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. 
She can't call on the name of the God that she's not believed in. She can't believe unless she hears. She can't hear unless someone preaches to her. And they can't preach unless they are sent. Take a look at this map of the world once more. Though we are a non-denominational church, we appreciate this resource provided by the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board, the world's largest international missions organization, with uh, other data provided by the Joshua Project and the Lausanne Movement. This is the state of evangelical Christianity globally. Look at the countries whose borders are fraught and marked with red. These are not just dots, these are souls, these are people. Do you remember the first of the four types of soils in Jesus' parable of the sower? You can see that false teachings, false religions, pagan faiths have riddled these nations. The birds swoop in and take away the gospel seed. Would you be the one to go and cast the seed of the gospel once more upon their hearts? What would they do? How will they call upon the God they've not believed in? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? How can they preach unless they're sent? I'm here by sending you, as God calls. When I first came to Highlands, God had confirmed in my heart, in my bride's heart, that this is exactly where God wanted us to be because we saw this beautiful story of the Brenners who left everything to go on mission to Honduras. And we were blown away to learn that this was not just a once in a decade thing. Like God has been doing this repeatedly since the founding of Highlands Community Church. And the very first question that I asked was, okay, who's next? Well, would you join me in celebrating and praising God for his calling upon this family? This beautiful family is the Menenbergs. God has called them to Zambia to do incredibly beautiful mission work. Now their sending date has been postponed. It is in flux given the coronavirus. It's likely to be in 2021. Would you join me in praying for that? But would you also join me in praising God for this beautiful, incredible ministry? And so now I ask again, Highlands Community Church, who's next? If God's working upon your heart to apply, to join in our international missions leadership team, to go on a short-term mission trip, to give to global missions, or just to pray for our missionaries, would you reach out to this email address for further information if God is calling you because of this sermon? How can they call upon the God they've not believed in? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. He's quoting Isaiah here. That's pretty amazing that even your feet would be beautiful. This is my bride's idea for a foot tattoo. But not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Remember, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So when you do this, when you share the gospel with somebody and they hear, this is where faith comes from. This is where God gives faith, right here, where you hear the message and you believe. How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? This is why God's calling you right now, not just to the nations abroad, but to the beautiful diversity of Seattle that's across the street from you right now, man. God has brought the nations here. You want to reach somebody who grew up across the world from you? Go check your mail and God will give an opportunity. This is where faith comes from. It comes from the hearing of the word. Verse 18, but I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. It's about to get tough. 
He's going to quote a psalm here. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. We saw in Romans 1, the divine nature and timeless nature, the divine power of God has been on full obvious display from everything that he has been made so that we are without excuse. We know, we know the truth of God, but we suppress it with our wickedness so we can get away with sin. Every one of us will stand before God and give an account. Quoting this psalm, you see general revelation referred to, wherein you look at the sunrise and you know it had to be created. You look at life itself, you know it had to be created. You watch your newborn baby and you know that there's meaning to life and morality is true. This is the general revelation of God. This is the specific revelation of God, revealed specifically in his word. And because of general revelation, none of us could possibly have an excuse. See Romans chapter 1. Every one of us will go before the Lord and be judged according to what we have done. In Hebrews chapter 9, just for example, okay, especially my skeptical friend, I want you to tune in on this. If you've been envisioning this day where you would stand in judgment before God and he would say, yeah, I think you're a pretty good person. I think I'll let you get into heaven. That's a satanic lie. You're heading towards hell. You need to listen to the word of God right now. I don't say that in judgment. I say that to throw you a life ring, friend. Listen to this. And just as as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christians stand in judgment before what is called the Bema seat of Christ. And for the Christian, judgment day is like hearing all the sins that you've been pardoned for, pardoned for, to tell us die, paid in full, the end of the law for everyone who believes. But for those who are not in Christ, you stand before the great white throne judgment that is described in Revelation chapter 20. If you, my skeptical friend, were under the impression that you could be a quote-unquote good person and stand before God, you need to listen to what God has actually said about this. If you're under the impression that people who are far away from the reach of the gospel have a chance of somehow coming to know Christ without hearing the gospel, without either the Holy Spirit of God specifically revealing it to him, or without you going on mission, here's what actually happens. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We will all be judged according to our works if we're not in Christ. And if we're not in Christ, we're not imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. There is no way to go to heaven apart from Jesus. To say that people who never hear the name of Jesus could be saved is to say that there's another way to salvation apart from Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Let's finish the text together. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, 
first, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. Now God's speaking back towards Israel once more. And Isaiah says boldly, this is Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. He's going to show now the tension that he's going to resolve in, in Romans chapter 11. This disobedient and defiant people were Israel. And historically, God was reaching out to them, even though they weren't reaching out to him. But the beautiful application of verse 20 in the hope it gives for Gentiles is evidence today through testimonies that are coming to our missionaries. People who walk up to our missionaries in full Muslim regalia and sit down and say, God showed me a vision of you and told me that you could tell me how I could become a Christian. Is that not election? Is that not salvation? This is incredible news. Christian who feels called to the one in the heart of Sudan. She's not innocent. There's no one innocent. There's no one who's sinless. Every one of us has sinned. She needs to hear the gospel. But the beautiful news of Romans 10 is that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But I ask of you, how can she call upon the God she's not believed in? How can she believe unless she hears? How can she hear unless you preach to her? How can you preach unless you're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. So may your feet be beautiful. May you bring the gospel of peace. Would you go? Would you go on mission? Go to her. Go to her. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you, you, God's obedient servant, are the beautiful means by which God would extend to her saving grace. Tell her the name of Jesus. Be there when she confesses with her mouth, Jesus is Lord. She believes in her heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and she is saved. She's saved. She's saved. What happens to the one in the heart of the country that's isolated from the gospel? You obey Romans 10 and you go on mission and you give your whole life to reaching as many people as you possibly can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before they put me in the ground, I want to share the gospel with as many people as I possibly can. What could be more important than making disciples of Jesus Christ Christian? Everyone who calls will be saved. So would you go? Now, my skeptical friend, you've just seen Romans 10:9, and it's true of you right now. So would you pray with me? Members of Highlands Community Church, you know just what to do. Right now, my skeptical friend, if God has drawn upon your heart to call upon his name, to be saved, you know, you know in your heart that when you stand in judgment before God to give an account for your works, you'll have sin. Today, would you proclaim God's words out to God? Pray with me right now. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. And I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, God, that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, when you yourself said that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way I can come to the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, 
Jesus is Lord. Would you say it right now, Highlands Community Church? Jesus is Lord. Type it in the comments for good measure. Say it out loud. Jesus is Lord. Let the neighbors hear it. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.